This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by our Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group, part of S&P Global Commodity Insights. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personalized engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Kat Hunter to speak about the Eastern Mediterranean. Kat, how are you? Hi, Hill. Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. I'm glad that we're able to do this. So I think this is an extremely exciting and interesting topic. And and for those who haven't been following oil and gas exploration in much detail over the past, I guess, 10 years now, 10, 15 years, the Eastern Med has hosted several large gas discoveries. You've got a lot of competing countries in terms of borders around the Eastern Med with activity and interest from the likes of Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, Cyprus, Egypt. And so there's a lot of above ground factors here that I want to consider. And then obviously with Europe and the ideas to move off of Russian gas, the Eastern Med is strategically located as a potential fix for that. And then topically and timely, today is October 26 and tomorrow, I think Lebanon and Israel are set to sign an agreement made over the past few weeks on a maritime dispute. And there's an upcoming election in Israel within the next week or two. So there's a lot in play. Some of it is directly gas related. Some of it is perhaps not. But I'm hoping to have discussion around this and get your thoughts on how we should view the Eastern Med in the in the world that we live in today as it relates to kind of gas supply and geopolitics. So Kat, maybe if you could help us out just kind of setting the stage, what's been going on in Eastern Med, both in terms of oil and gas exploration, but in terms of the geopolitics influencing that. Sure, yeah. As you say, it's sort of 10, 12 years since the region kind of came to the forefront of EMP focus with the giant discoveries offshore Israel, Tamar first, and then Viathan. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Egypt has been a producer for many years, but Egypt was starting to fade by that point. And I guess those discoveries offshore Israel revived interest in the region. And now the region is sort of chock-a-block full of the top names in the oil and gas industry, super majors, some mid-sized players as well, and some small EMP companies as well as NOCs. So it's got a really rich diversity of competitors and investors. But what's surprising is that, as you mentioned, you know, there's lots of uh, border delineation issues, issues over the recognition of territories, for instance, the north of Cyprus, the Palestinian territories, and then those maritime borders between them all, very few of them have actually been resolved. But despite that, EMP has moved forward for the large part. In Cyprus, it's necessarily been concentrated in the south, so that it overlaps less with Turkish claims. But Israel has been able to move forward from exploration to development in a fairly short time span. And since then, there's been a kind of improvement in the geopolitics of the region, partly led by regional players and regional actors themselves seeing common interest in, for instance, the sharing of infrastructure to monetize gas, but also because of the Abraham Accords 
and the influence that that had in terms of Israel's position in the wider Middle East region. And, you know, the latest sort of element of that seems to be this border agreement between Israel and Lebanon. They're still technically at war. And so it's all been negotiated via the US. And as I understand it, they'll be in different rooms at the signing ceremony tomorrow for the border agreement. So it's not like necessarily that this is like a laid all kind of disputes between the two countries. However, prices where they are, opportunities where they are, investment interests where it is, there is a kind of impetus there to reach an agreement so that prospective resources don't get stranded. And the U.S. is pretty optimistic on the Lebanon-Israel agreement in terms of the ability for, I think it's Total and E&I that hold the blocks that are kind of in question here. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, as we understand it, Total and any uh, will be moving forward with drilling in Block 9, which is the one that had an overlap with Israel. I mean, there is another block that hasn't been awarded yet that was also overlapping. And there's a prospect in that area which would presumably be the target of that drilling. However, there are several issues that still need to be resolved. A lot rests on Total's shoulders in terms of its negotiations with Israel over potential kind of revenue split from any discovery. And politics on both sides of the border are kind of fairly volatile. Lebanon having huge economic crisis and political weakness terms of federal government. And in Israel, we've got, you said, elections and the proportional representation system there means that minority parties, small parties have an outsized say in politics and in key policies. And so you can see a degree of flux between administrations. So we'll see, we'll see what comes out of that. Okay. And we've talked about Tal and E&I. The other fields you mentioned that the early Israeli discoveries, which I think was 2008, 9 or 10 or something, was that was Noble-led, which is today Chevron, due to the acquisition several years ago. Who are some of the other players that are active in this region? I know E&I, for instance, is all over the med. Are there other yeah. others that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting kind of mix. As I said, most of the super, well, nearly all the super majors are there, but some of them are kind of more recent entrants to the region. So as you mentioned, Chevron took over Noble's stakes. So that included in Leviathan and Tamar. Chevron has also taken some offshore Egypt acreage as well, exploration acreage. So it's got foot in two countries there. BP has stayed put in Egypt, where it's got a strong presence. Shell, again, has kind of stayed put in Egypt, although it has a small stake in the Aphrodite field in Cyprus, which is again operated by Chevron. And then Total and Eni are kind of very present offshore Cyprus and then the Lebanon blocks, as you discussed. So that's that sort of seems to be the, the kind of division. And those divisions are important, not only for, you know, people, for those companies' strategies and what they're seeking to do at the moment, but also in terms of how you monetize gas, right. uh, who holds infrastructure will be very important and where it's located will be very important for which gas discoveries move forward to development. For instance, there's a couple of fields in the south of Cyprus, the Kronos and the Calypso discoveries, which are total any discoveries. And you that could was just earlier this year, right? That yeah, was Kronos August was earlier this year. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of established that, although there's no development plan as yet. But mm-hmm. one option might be to develop that using infrastructure from the Zor field, which is okay. an any operated field in Egypt. 
So all these sort of things come into alignment and how you optimise the development and, and reduce the costs. Because, you know, many of these discoveries are in deep water areas quite in, a, in quite a distant sort of um, remote locations. And so let's stay on that for a little bit. The fields that are on production now, are those limited to those early, call it early 2010 discoveries and the noble discoveries coming out of Israel and perhaps Aphrodite as well? Yes. So, so far we've had Tamar um, online. That was that was the first major Israeli uh, development. It had mm-hmm. Mary B way back when, but that was much smaller. And then uh, Leviathan came online, I think 2020, and that's feeding the Israeli market, Jordanian market and Egyptian market as well. And then in the coming days, it looks like Karish will be the third major field offshore Israel to come on to commercial production. They've been testing that facility for the last few weeks and it had got caught up in this sort of tit for tat over the boundary delineation between Israel and, and Lebanon, mm-hmm. uh, with, his, uh, with uh, Lebanon actually claiming that field at one point or part of that field at one point. But with the border agreement, it seems that that can move forward now. And that's been developed by energy. And so, yeah, so we've had those. And then the, Cyprus, fortunately, hasn't been able to monetize any of its gas so far. Okay. And that's a facet of the size of the discoveries. If they're slightly larger, maybe they would have moved forward earlier. But also the politics, the geopolitics of those kind of discoveries and, and, and Cyprus's EMP sector, difficult to send gas, for instance, to Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes we've had sort of rival drilling campaigns with Turkish, the TPAO, drilling in areas that have been awarded by Cyprus. So there has been sort of complications with those. But yeah, with prices where they are, with regional collaboration as it is, this seems to be the moment where we might see Cyprus move forward. And so where you mentioned some of the gas discovered off of Israel going into Israel, which I suppose is somewhat intuitive. And there was an article in The Economist a couple of weeks ago about how there's so much gas in the larger Middle Eastern region that I think for this discussion would include the um, Eastern Mediterranean. But that area is also the gas demand is growing significantly, Egypt being an example as well. What does the infrastructure look like in terms of the ability to monetize? Can, can it only go locally? I think Egypt has an LNG. Are they the only ones in the region of liquefaction today? Yeah, so Egypt has two LNG facilities and both of those are underutilized. So that's really the kind of first port of call for excess regional gas. And both Israel and Cyprus are kind of targeting those facilities. And what's the ownership gas. structure of the Egypt uh, liquefaction? So one is uh, Segas, and that's Eni and the Egyptian state companies. The other is the Idku facility, Egyptian LNG, and that's Shell and Petronas. Okay. Um, Although there's kind of rumours that Petronas might be willing to sell its stake in that. Okay. And so is all the, and then of course the local demand from Israel or, or others. These are large discoveries. So, so is all the gas trying to get to Egypt for liquefaction? So Israel has quite a strict domestic market obligation, which varies by field size. And that policy is reviewed every five years in terms of what should be set aside for local use. For years and years, Israel was one of the only countries in the Middle East that didn't have any of its own hydrocarbon resources. So once those discoveries were made, there was a real sort of 
focus on making sure that they had energy security first. Mm-hmm. But for the developers, obviously having more markets and being able to optimize the development pathway and the actual investment kind of flow was important. And so access to international markets has been important for the development of Leviathan in particular. And one can expect further phases of Leviathan and Tama to be uh, to be looking largely at export markets. The infrastructure that's being used is the infrastructure that was initially developed for Egypt to export to the region. So it used to have a pipeline going to Israel, the El Arish Ashkelon pipeline. It used to have a pipeline that went all the way up to Syria and was targeting mm. a connection with Turkey and Europe. Uh, both those pipelines are now working in reverse, so flowing Israeli gas back down through Jordan on one way to Egypt and then to Egypt via the um, Ashkelon El Arish route as well. And this discussion about further pipelines to open up. But all of this relies on Egypt being a reliable partner. Mm-hmm. And it has been so far and it's committed to kind of it really does want to encourage this gas to run through Egypt, both because it helps it meets its own domestic demand. And it means that it can utilize the facilities, the export facilities that it has. But for the developers in other countries, perhaps there's a question there about how much you want to put all your eggs in one basket. And so we're seeing discussion of floating LNG and other other options as well, which might be less commercially attractive initially, but might give greater security. I assume Zor is also influencing some of Egypt's thoughts on this as well, right? I mean, Zor is a huge discovery within Egypt's control that I would assume those molecules would take precedence over imported molecules as Zor comes online. Yeah, I mean, Zor is a very rapid development and is around sort of half of Egyptian production right now. So whatever happens at Zor is very much influencing Egypt's gas balance. But what we're seeing is some disappointing production figures from other Egyptian fields, for instance, West Nile Delta, which is a BP operated field. And that means that actually Egypt tipped into net importer status again in June this year. I haven't seen the figures for July yet. They should they should actually be out. But we can see Egypt potentially getting into net importer territory in the next year or so on an annual basis and perhaps in the summer months on a, when demand is high. So at that point there, you know, it, it's going to need this regional gas. So getting the commercial framework right, providing the reassurance of payment to mm-hmm. potential suppliers is going to be important for Egypt's own energy security, as well as its ambitions to become the gas hub for the region. And those, you said that both of those liquefaction locations are underutilized. Is there any talk of expanding that or is it premature because of the underutilization? At various points, there have been discussions about expansion, particularly of the SEGAS facility. I think there would need to be a commitment on further gas supplies before that would make commercial sense. And yeah, so so at the moment, I think it's a kind of consideration, but until there's an, enough gas to kind of meet the existing sort of capacity, maybe that one needs to take to, to sit on a back burner. And the, the, the projects, we've talked about a lot of discoveries, some of which are commercial, some of which are flowing. Where are we in the timeline of some of these things that, that are not flowing yet? I, I think I, I saw some information published recently to clients that, that showed a number of projects coming online. It's 2022 now coming online in the next three to five years, assuming no delays. 
Yeah, so I mean, Karish is the big one. So that's, yeah, that already seems to be test flowing and should be in commercial flow sometime in the next month or so. And where uh, is that? That's that's in Israel okay. to the north to, to the north of its maritime sort of area. Aphrodite is kind of waiting, and at various points, the Cypriot government and the developers have been close to development plan. But then, you know, the COVID nineteen pandemic hits, changes in the gas market conditions. We had Chevron coming in, so periodically we hear discussion about that being monetized, perhaps with a new pipeline running to the Egyptian domestic markets. Mm-hmm. It could also be developed in tandem with the Leviathan 1B phase. So Leviathan 1A is already online, uh, mm-hmm. but Leviathan 1B would offer another 900 million cubic feet per day. And that one there is probably the biggest tranche that we're waiting for, but but there's been no FID on that yet. Okay. And then there's a, a host of other projects or discoveries most recently, Kronos One, that are kind of waiting in the wings that, that can continue to add capacity to, to the Eastern Mediterranean supply. Potentially, yeah. I mean, if they, if, they, if they come up with a sort of development plan and, and, and can bring the costs down because it, it, Kronos and Calypso are still relatively small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's kind of about the economics of an, an ability to aggregate and and um, I guess recycle infrastructure that's been underutilized. And so, as we're looking at this over the next um, few you know months or, or years, that there's obviously the called the ESG pressures that that are sometimes limiting or perhaps discouraging investment and long lead time fossil fuel linked infrastructure projects. What's the I mean the, the general attitude if if we go back. What was it, 2015, when Zora was discovered? There was all sorts of enthusiasm around the Eastern Mediterranean. Has that changed as some of the pressures around fossil fuels have come more into play? And then I guess a tag along to that kind of question, is it changing again as Europe considers gas supply sources outside of traditional Russia? Yeah, it's it's strange. I mean, I think the Eastern Med is really kind of bucked that trend and as you say you know with the sort of renewed focus on energy security this might actually accelerate volumes out of Israel and potentially you know make the difference between Cypriot gas being stranded and and actually finding a market Cyprus obviously being an EU member as well kind of an advantage in a energy security situation but I mean what may happen is that it becomes more difficult to fund large new infrastructure projects. So it's kind of smaller infrastructure developments, you know, between the countries. Say, you know, there's a proposal for an onshore pipeline between Israel and Egypt. That kind of project may be able to move forward. But some of these big schemes that you hear about, for instance, you know, there is a sort of scheme about an East Mediterranean gas pipeline. Mm-hmm. That that kind of project lacking any kind of or a significant upstream backing from the the from the gas resource holders in the region plus going to europe which is still ambivalent about the role of gas in the future i imagine that's where the esg pressures will will tell the most whereas you know for a country like egypt for instance it's it's hope, hosting cop this year 
but focus there is still very much on energy security and getting enough gas. There's a possibility it might come out with a net zero target at some point. It hasn't so far. But, but yeah, it's very much about making sure there is adequate energy for domestic use rather than an ESG specific agenda at the moment. And you, and you mentioned earlier floating LNG. I mean, how that would seem to mitigate some of the energy security concerns that, that if if one relies fully on Egypt or any other country, it, regardless of what one thinks about um, one partner versus another, relying on a single partner or, or giving too much market power to one partner perhaps is troubling in, in today's world. What's the, is the floating LNG, is the inhibitor there economics? Yeah, I think it's just that you've got an easy low cost route to market where you might produce at slightly lower rates, but, you know, have a kind of almost guaranteed route to market, but with some potential commercial risks, depending on the pricing in Egypt and some potential risks of just over-reliance on anyone. Mm -hmm. But set against that, you know, you have the sort of big upfront investment in FLNG, but with that, you get some flexibility as well, tying yourself into a, any specific partner, perhaps options to kind of sell to Asian buyers. So, yeah, but but I think funding and finance and, and, and the economics of it will, will clearly be, be factors uh, which need to be weighed up. Um, and perhaps, you know, some of it will come down to company preference. You know, how does Chevron see the, the gas world evolving? How does mm-hmm. it how does it view reliance on two Middle Eastern countries, you know, Jordan, uh, where it's flowing gas to Jordan itself, but also to Egypt and, and Egypt as, as, as an end buyer as well. So it, it, there's quite a lot of, you've got to have faith, I suppose, that, that those really regional relationships will hold. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what Chevron's position on that is at the moment. So what, I mean, if we're, if we're looking at this, uh, I know tomorrow we're, we're expecting the, the, the Lebanon Israel signature, expecting that activity to, to, to happen, the, the Israel election coming up over the next couple of weeks. If we're thinking, you know, six, 12 months ahead, what, what are the near term, the, the other near term things we should be paying attention to um, and watching either at the operator level or at the country level, both in terms of enablers or perhaps inhibitors for this gas to, to find more access to markets? So I suppose the Turkish elections will be quite interesting, not just the elections themselves and the outcome of that, but the sort of like the run up to them and, you know, whether that kind of encourages a a more aggressive or belligerent stance about what's happening offshore Cyprus or whether it brings about or kind of encourages greater accommodation. I think the jur- jur- they're in 2023 okay. uh, and I think the jury is still out on where exactly that will lead because, I mean, Turkey has improved its relationship with Israel over the last year, for instance, mm-hmm. but does have kind of firm interests in terms of it, you know, the Mediterranean and in terms of North Cyprus as well, which may may see it sort of seek to block or disrupt Cyprus's chances of moving forward. So I think that's, you know, one thing to watch. The second thing, I mean, I do think that Leviathan 1B will be signed off in the next year. And and that will be interesting because not only because it makes Israel a really significant gas player, but also it will be significant because of depending on what what route Chevron choose to push that gas in, whether they go for an FLNG 
uh, whether they go for a new pipeline to Egypt to one of the LNG facilities there, that will kind of set the framework for future gas monetization in the region. That's one very much to watch. How about the upcoming COP? Does that is Egypt going to is is there an opportunity for Egypt to use that to further its positive reputation as a gas hub for the region? Yes, I mean, I suppose it's it, it's focus. I mean, as a you know, it's a developing country, so uh, the focus of Egyptian diplomacy seems to be around uh, loss and damages, the desire or the need to get developed countries to pay more for adaptation and uh, mitigation in emerging markets. So that's been a real focus rather than kind of upstream oil and gas or production. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of initiatives over the last six to 12 months in terms of sort of hydrogen collaboration, green hydrogen, those kinds of schemes. And, and Egypt, Egypt is doing very well on renewables as well. So that's that's been the kind of emphasis. One of my colleagues pointed out the other day that actually Egypt hasn't launched a licensing round this year, which one might have expected, and that might be related to COP. But uh, you know, I don't I don't see any kind of change in Egypt's approach to maximizing the value of its oil and gas resources as a result of an ESG agenda. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, I think this is a, a good place to leave it. And it sounds like there, there's plenty to pay attention to in as early as tomorrow, which will be many days in the past once this podcast goes live. So, so Kat, I, I thank you for your time and your color on all these Eastern Med matters. And hopefully we can come back and do this again as more information reveals itself. Thanks, Hill. My pleasure. Yeah, and I'll, I'll remind people that our email address is energysense at spglobal.com and we will put information about how to learn more about the above ground risk analysis that Kat and her team do for Commodity Insights in the liner notes to, to this podcast. So, Kat, thanks again and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit us at spglobal.com. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for S&P Global Commodity Insights on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at spglobal.com.